Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting. Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind that is the mind of Christ. And to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians read through the Book of Concord and discuss what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we are going to look at the Catalog of Testimonies, which is included in the appendix of the Reader's Edition of the Book of Concord. And I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Evangelical Lutheran Dual Parish of Emmanuel West Point in St. Paul's Wine Hill in Southern Illinois. And my companion confessor in conversation about this document today is Pastor Anthony Dodgers. He is the pastor of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Charlotte, Iowa. Pastor Dodgers, welcome to Concord Matters. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, it is certainly an honor and joy to have you on today as we dig into this really rather unique document that is included in the appendix of the Book of Concord, especially the reader's edition of the Book of Concord, which we use, of course, on this show, available to you from Concordia Publishing House, the publishing arm of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. And last week, when I began this little series of episodes, looking at the documents included in the appendices of the reader's edition of the Book of Concord, we began by looking at Luther's A Brief Exhortation to Confession. I went with that one because of kind of the time factor it was written earlier than some of these other two documents, though it's actually in Appendix B. So a little weird if you're trying to follow along in straight order of the appendices, but written earlier, but then in Appendix B. And so as we covered in that document, all of these three documents that are in the appendices are not technically a part of the Book of Concord. And so that is to say that Luther's A Brief Exhortation to Confession, the Catalog of Testimonies, which we're covering today, and then next week as we look at the Saxon Visitation Articles, they're not listed among the documents that we profess our confessional subscription to as contained in the Book of Concord of 1580. So actually, just recently, I was going through the congregational constitution of one of my congregations here with an adult comfort man that I had. And I always like to point out that second article in that constitution for us is it actually lists the documents of the Book of Concord of 1580 as what we subscribe to as a church of the Lutheran confession, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod congregation. And that's pretty standard in most Lutheran congregations and not listed among those are any of these three documents that we're covering in this. However, each of these three documents that are contained in the appendices that we're covering in this series have traditionally been included in various editions of the Book of Concord along with the confessional documents. So again, we covered that some last week, and I think the reader's edition of the Book of Concord that we use explains this really simply and yet also well, and then also kind of gets us into what we're going to be seeing in this document. So I'm going to go ahead and read that. This is, again, the editor's note from Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, a reader's edition of the Book of Concord from Concordia Publishing House. It says this, The catalog of testimonies was appended to several early editions of the Book of Concord to show that Lutheran teaching about the two natures in Christ is thoroughly in line with the historic and universal faith of the Christian church. The doctrine of the two natures in Christ, known as Christology, is the foundation for the Bible's teaching about justification. 
Justification without biblical Christology becomes a philosophical abstraction. Christology makes justification what it is, a powerful, present, joyful reality through word and sacrament, by means of which the God-man, Jesus Christ, is present with us and for us, according to both his divine and human natures, giving us forgiveness, life, and salvation. Reformed theologians denied that Christ's human nature is present under the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper and accused Lutherans of making up new understandings about the two natures in Christ. Therefore, it was necessary for Lutherans to refute these claims and show that their doctrine is, in fact, thoroughly in keeping with Scripture and the ancient church fathers who taught the same things. The translation is based on the Latin text. All right, thus far the editor's notes or the catalog of testimonies. Pastor Dodgers, a lot going on in here. And a lot very familiar to what I've been covering on this show for the last several months as we went through the Formula of Concord. Go ahead and tell us what's going on with this document and what we're going to see here and what they're talking about here. Yeah, well, it was the work of the same guys who wrote and promoted the Formula of Concord, men like Jacob Andrea and Martin Chemnitz and Nicholas Selnecker. They compiled this as a way to sort of confirm what they had already described in the Formula of Concord. And as the editor's note points out, the main reason for this is this controversy between the Orthodox Lutherans and the Reformed, and even some Lutherans that had a little bit of a Reformed theology in their understanding of the Lord's Supper, Christ's bodily presence in the bread and the wine. The Reformed, you know, said Christ, his body can't be in the bread because his body is in heaven sitting at the right hand of God. And as we all know, a body can't be in two places at the same time. To this, the Lutherans responded, Christ's divine and human natures are perfectly joined in the union of his person. So the Son of God is not confined to any one place, and wherever the Son of God is, his whole person is there, including his body. And so wherever Christ wants his body to be, it is there. It's not just a regular human body like yours or mine that's confined to one particular place in space, but it is the body belonging to the eternal Son of God. And so because the Lutherans and the Reformed were wrestling over this question, the Lutherans realized, which you've talked about on your show in the Formula of Concord at great length, but just the short version is the Lutherans realized, hold on, you guys have a problem with your Christology. It's not just that you don't understand the Lord's Supper, but you don't understand the person of Christ and his incarnation. And so that's why they went on from Article 7 in the formula to Article 8, dealing with the person of Christ. And that's why they include all these testimonies from the early church in this catalog as an extra source of proof for this teaching. Yeah. And I think what I really want to highlight for us today is exactly what you just said, is how these are the testimonies that support the Lutheran confession, that Lutheran teaching that we did see as we went through the formula of Concord. And so in the formula, we really covered the particular teaching and explaining the theology. That was the whole purpose of that confessional document of the formula of Concord is this is what we believe teach and confess from scripture. And then the connection point here is this document is basically to, this is a gross oversimplification maybe, but Here's a list of all the places that support what we confessed in the Formula of Concord. Would you say that's a fair summary there? Maybe gross oversimplification, but fair summary? 
No, I think that's totally fair. I think you're going to read this in the introduction to it, but they even say, well, there wasn't room to put all the quotations from the church fathers in the formula. So here's, here's the rest of them. And so that is going to be our connecting point and where we'll move into next year then is just actually reading the first couple paragraphs where it will say that. But I did want to highlight that on today's show, it's going to be a little bit different than really the show has been dedicated to, which is really, again, teaching that Lutheran confession, digging into the theology that we believe, teach, and confess as Lutheran Christians from Scripture, of course. And this episode is really going to be focused more on where are some of those places that support our teaching. So not so much digging in into the theology today as much as digging into the support for our teaching of theology. So with that, let's go ahead and jump in and read just the first couple of paragraphs. And we're not going to be reading all the way through the catalog of testimonies that I think that would maybe be a little monotonous for our listeners and not necessarily real beneficial because, again, it's just a long list supporting where we're getting our teaching. And instead, again, want to focus particularly on those testimonies that we have. And so this first couple paragraphs, really sets that up really well for us. So this is the Catalog of Testimonies and long subtitle here, From Scripture and the Orthodox Ancient Church that show what Scripture and the early church taught about the person of Christ and the divine majesty and his human nature, who is exalted to God's omnipotent right hand. They also show what forms of speech are used by Scripture and the Orthodox early church. That's that's a whole mouthful. And just for the listener's sake, the whole purpose, again, of this episode today will be to try and explain what all of that means and why it matters for our Lutheran confession. So getting into these first couple paragraphs here. To the Christian reader, some people claim that the Book of Concord deviates from the phrases and ways of speaking used by the pure ancient church and church fathers, particularly in those articles concerning the person of Christ. They say that new, strange, made-up, unusual, and unheard-of expressions have been introduced. The Book of Concord appeals to the ancient church and church fathers, but many quotations from the church fathers were too long to include in the Book of Concord itself. Excerpts were carefully prepared and delivered to several electors and princes. They are printed here as an appendix at the end of the Book of Concord in regard to particular points for the purpose of providing the reader a thorough and correct accounting. A person will easily recognize that when these doctrines are taught in the Book of Concord, nothing new has been introduced, either in the doctrinal issues themselves or in phrases and ways of speaking. We have spoken and taught about these mysteries, first of all, just as Holy Scripture does, and also as the ancient pure church did. Therefore, when the Book of Concord teaches about the unity of the person of Christ, the distinction of the two natures in Christ, and their essential properties— It is doing so just as the fathers and councils of the ancient pure church have. They all taught that there are not two persons, but one Christ. In this person, there are two distinct natures, the divine and the human, which are not separated or intermingled or transformed into each other. Each nature has and retains its essential attributes to all eternity, never laying them aside. The essential attributes of the one nature, which are truly and properly ascribed to the entire person, never become attributes of the other nature. This is proven by the following testimonies from the ancient pure councils. Thus far, the introduction, first couple paragraphs of the catalog of testimonies, and then what follows is that long list of the testimonies that support this teaching. And just a reminder again for our listeners, and I kind of mentioned this last week, And as you highlighted, Pastor Dodgers, you said that this was put together by Jacob Andre and Martin Chemnitz, the same guys that put together a formula of Concord. 
And remember that when they put the formula of Concord out, they also then basically introduced that first book of Concord as we know it, the book of Concord of 1580. And that was on the 50th anniversary of the presentation of the Augsburg Confession. So June 25th, when that was presented and put out there. And I like how they reference here how really we've seen this, especially on this show, as we've gone through the last six years, more than six years on this show that the church fathers are cited quite a bit throughout the various documents of the Book of Concord, but they said some of them are too long here to include in the confessions, especially they're probably thinking more of the formula, but here they're going to list that. So not really anything new here, but go ahead and introduce this then for us. What's this introduction getting us into? Yeah, the main point is they're addressing the challenge that they have been teaching new doctrines. This is coming from both, probably both sides, I suppose, from the papists, the Roman church, but then here in, they have particularly, they have in mind the reformed saying that you Lutherans are coming up with new strange doctrines and new unheard of expressions, ways of describing the doctrine of Christ's person that have never been used before. And the Lutherans here, Chemnitz and the others, go back through the early church, the councils and the fathers, and say, we're not coming up with anything new. We are restating what the church has always taught about Christ and his two natures. So I think that's really the main point, and that's what they're going to show then at great length through this catalog of testimonies. So then in going back to the early church... Perhaps sometimes the danger there is to think that it's making almost, again, as you've already pointed out for us, and the introduction and so forth as well, the main focus, if you will, of who they're talking to here is the Reformed. And so some might say, well, this is a Roman Catholic move to go back to the ancient church and the church fathers. And again, part of what I want to highlight on this episode today is that the Lutherans can go to the ancient church and the church fathers. But I think in setting all of that up and covering that, one of the things that we first have to wrestle with is that in our day and age, many Christians maybe are not all that familiar with the church fathers and the writings of the ancient church. Now, maybe the listeners of this show, probably a pretty selective audience, self-selective audience that probably does have some exposure to the church fathers and appreciation of the church fathers if you're willing to listen to a show that goes through the Book of Concord and our Lutheran confessions. But again, in our day and age, many Christians just not all that familiar with the church fathers, not that willing to give them any sort of credit, if you will. But the reformers, the Lutheran reformers, obviously considered them important. But I think even the reformed reformers, you know, so following Calvin and Zwingli and so forth, they would have considered them important enough that we're going to use them in supporting our points over against theirs, right? And so why did the Lutherans of the 16th century use the church fathers? Or we might ask it this way, how do the ancient fathers of the church fit into the Reformation then? Well, the Lutheran reformers knew or believe and confessed, just as we do still today, that there is one holy Christian and apostolic church. So they did not see themselves as starting a new church in the 1500s. And so they did not see what had come before them as sort of the private property of the Roman church or of the Pope. The Lutherans saw themselves as the continuation of that one Catholic, lowercase c, Catholic universal church. 
that includes everyone who has taught and believed the one Christian faith. So as seeing themselves as the true heirs of that heritage that had been passed down in the church, they felt free to quote the church fathers both against the papists and against the more radical Protestant reformers, including the Zwinglians and the Calvinists. And you're right that someone like John Calvin certainly read and appreciated and used many of the early church fathers, and yet he differs with them in many cases, especially when it comes to the Lord's Supper. So to that point, I think that's interesting how they begin this introduction, that very first paragraph in their introduction, is that they say some people claim that the Book of Concord deviates from the phrases and ways of speaking used by the pure ancient church and church fathers. And so I think that's the connecting point. What you just said is that even Calvin, though he himself actually differs from them, as we would see going through all of these catalog of testimonies, his claim that we're speaking differently is just not valid. Yeah, right. Really, I suppose we could say maybe he should know better. But yeah, that's what the whole point of laying all these out and just showing again and again how we are not coming up with anything new. Anybody can go and read the Church Fathers and they will see that what we are teaching in the Lutheran Confessions is not contradicting what the Church Fathers taught on the two natures of Christ. And then meanwhile, at the same time, again, while primarily the Reformed are in view here, I think this is also really helpful still in terms of our relationship to our confession over against Rome, taking us all the way back to the Augsburg Confession, right? That's why we would also cite the fathers in the Augsburg Confession, especially the apology of the Augsburg Confession, is this is something that they're maybe a little more comfortable with. And again, they probably twist the church fathers a good bit, but I just wanted to highlight there while maybe the Reformed are in view here certainly is a great point for our confession over against the Roman Catholic Church as well. And really, it's just, as I think you highlighted so well for us and pointed out there for us, is that this is just the one holy Catholic or universal Christian confession. And this is the way faithful Orthodox Christians have confessed it all along. Yeah, absolutely. The Roman Church says, you guys changed things. And the Lutherans just kept insisting, we're not changing our teaching. You're the ones that changed by adding new false doctrines throughout the centuries. But even something so essential to the Reformation, the doctrine of justification by grace through faith in Christ alone, we Lutherans can kind of even get to think that's a uniquely Lutheran teaching. But the Lutheran Reformers said, No, we didn't even invent that. All of it comes from the scriptures, and it has all been said before us throughout the centuries of the church. Absolutely. All right, then, Pastor Dodgers, and with just a couple of minutes before break here, I think one of the other things that is an interesting thing to talk about when we're talking about the fathers is really just the term itself. The term fathers is an interesting term in and of itself, I think. And so how would you say that these authors that we're citing here in this catalog of testimonies, how are they like fathers? Why would we use that term in talking about these ancient Christian authors? Yeah, well, it is a really specific term, isn't it? You don't just call anybody your father. If you call someone father, it would mean that you belong to their family. And sometimes, you know, we do this, we consider someone a father who we aren't blood related to, but by calling them our father, we are attaching ourselves to them in a way that's unique. I think it's important to know 
where you come from. This is true in every area of life. Your ancestry, your family, how you were brought up, your home life, it all shapes who you are today. And so beyond that, you have a special relationship with the man that you call father. And I I would say one of the defining characteristics of the relationship with your father is that he's your teacher. A child goes to his father for help and guidance and to learn. And so when the Lutherans quote the early church fathers, they are claiming them as part of their family, their church family, but they're not just trying to stay connected to the past. Old things can be very good, but old things, they aren't good just because they're old. Uh, The Lutherans were in the middle of a fight over pure doctrine, and so they drew their teaching from scripture, but they also turned to their fathers in the faith for help, for guidance, for teaching to assist them in their arguments with the Roman church and the other Protestants. Yeah, and as you bring out there, it really is so centered on the faith. And I have little uh, segments on my show that I sometimes bring in. And one of them, a common one is Sean's soapboxes. And I'm going to get on one here right now. One of my common soapboxes is I think one of the things that we have lost in the Lutheran church is that term father in connection with the pastoral office. And that's not directly related here when we talk about the ancient church fathers. But I think in this sense, it is related that just using that term father, as you said, we don't call just anyone father. It's a connection of the family. And there is that spiritual connection between a pastor and his spiritual children, the congregation. And scripture certainly talks this way. I mean, St. Paul oftentimes references people to children in the faith, his spiritual children and things like that. First Corinthians 4 verse 15 comes to mind where he says, I became your father through the gospel. And I think that is related into this term then somewhat as well, right? Is that these are our fathers in the faith. These are the ones who have handed down to us that teaching, that confession of the gospel as St. Paul himself received from Christ, handed down to his spiritual children, and then they handed it down. And so these early pastors, these early church fathers are just handing down the faith. And that's what we're seeking to do, even in our Lutheran confession, right? I don't know. You have any thoughts on my soapbox there? I'll get up and stand on it with you. Yeah, I agree. The Christian faith doesn't just drop out of the sky independently every time a new generation comes up. It's handed down from parents to their children. Yeah, we owe a great deal to our fathers in the faith, the ones that have come before us. And we have the great blessing of being able to reap all the benefits, all the struggles that they had to deal with are now presented for us to learn from. Really makes our Christian life almost in a way a little easier. Definitely. Well, and thanks for staying on that soapbox with me. And uh, I agree that, yeah, we have a lot to learn from them, a lot of benefit that we receive from them. So it's good to have them included in this catalog of testimonies. And we're going to take a break here. And on the other side of the break, we're going to pick up who are some of these church fathers that we're talking about and who are some of the ones that we see show up here in the catalog of testimonies. We'll get all to that after this break. You're listening to Concord Matters on KFUL. Cross Defense is the show where we talk about curious topics to excite the imagination, equip the mind, and comfort the soul with God's Word. Join me, Pastor Tyrell Bramwell, every Monday at 2 p.m. Central on KFUO Radio, or anytime on KFUO.org, or even your favorite podcast app. My friends, our foe is a fierce enemy. Our only defense 
Christ on the cross. And welcome back to Concord Matters as we continue talking with Pastor Anthony Dodgers, who is the pastor of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Charlotte, Iowa. And he is getting us through, getting us into really the catalog of testimonies, that document that is included in Appendix A of the Reader's Edition of the Book of Concord. And just in the first part of the show, we were talking about the great benefit of citing as testimonies, faithful testimonies that confess the faith pass it down from generation to generation, those church fathers. And we talked about the great importance and benefit really to the church of the church fathers, the ancient church fathers, especially as we see in this document. But then as we get into this document, as I said, in the setting this all up, this is really quite a long document, a long catalog of testimonies. And part of what they said themselves was we didn't include these in the confessions, the Lutheran confessions, in part because of their length but very important to have. And so we're not going to just read all the way through that. That would be maybe a little bit tedious, especially for our radio program. However, while we can't read it all the way through, I do want you, Pastor Dodgers, to just give us an overview here. Who are these fathers that we're talking about, who they are specifically, especially, but then also maybe give us some idea of what significance would you say is in that? So throwing a lot at you there, but go ahead and take us away and getting us into the document itself here. Who do we see and what's the significance of it. Sure. Actually, I'd say we've been talking a lot about the fathers, sort of these individual men, but we don't want to forget about the councils. The uh, catalog of testimony begins with a couple of the, what we call the ecumenical councils. Uh, The Book of Concord has, uh, as far as I know, cites the first four ecumenical councils of the early church. You've got Nicaea, and Constantinople. Those are probably the most familiar for Lutherans, as we know where the Nicene Creed came from out of those two councils that dealt with the doctrine of the Trinity. And then the third council is the Council of Ephesus, and then the fourth was the Council of Chalcedon. And those two are the Christological councils that deal with the issue of the two natures divine and human in the one person of Christ. And so those are the councils that are brought up here in the catalog of testimonies. And I think it's important that we don't forget about those meetings of some of the great minds of the time to hash out those theological debates and come to a better understanding of Scripture's teaching on those doctrines. But then in the rest of the catalog, we do get all these individual fathers. They are teachers. Some of them were bishops. Some were pastors. Some were monks or scholars. Most of the fathers that are cited are in some way connected with those first four councils. And so maybe just to give you a little bit of an idea of who these different guys are, I'll name a few. And I'll point out to our listeners that if you're ever reading through the Book of Concord, or even another book, theology book, and they mention some weird old name like Athanasius or Basil or Leo, and you say, who is this guy? Uh, It's not a character from the Bible, so who is this? There is a really useful resource at the back of your Concordia Reader's Edition called Person and groups back by the index. And I'll admit, I use it. I I can't remember when exactly did uh, Eusebius of Caesarea live. And you can go back there and find out when he lived. And it gives, you know, just a brief little paragraph of who the person is. And that can help you out a lot as you're reading the confessions. 
So anyways, most of the ones that are cited in the catalog come from these two powerhouse centuries. I don't know why, other than the providence of God working through his church in history. So in the 300s and the 400s, you just have a tremendous wealth of great minds and teachers in the church. In the 300s, especially surrounding the Council of Nicaea, you have teachers, fathers like Athanasius or Eusebius of Caesarea. There's a few other, maybe more minor ones that get quoted. Then in between the first two councils, so also in the 300s, but these men wouldn't have taken part in the Council of Nicaea, and maybe not even in the Second Council either, but you have Basil the Great and Gregory of Nyssa, John Chrysostom, Hilary of Poitiers, Ambrose, and Augustine. And those names are probably some of the most familiar names for us, and that's just because they were such great teachers in the church. Their works have survived, and we still find them useful today. Then going on into the 400s, that's when the councils of Ephesus and Chalcedon happened, where they're dealing with the Christological issues. And the two really big names attached with those councils in the 400s are Leo of Rome, the Bishop of Rome, and Cyril, Bishop of Alexandria. Besides these really big, important guys, there's others that get mentioned both in the catalog and in the rest of the Book of Concord, some that come from earlier centuries, even going back to the 100s and the 200s, so right after the apostles, you have guys like Justin Martyr and Origen. And then there's also a few coming from the later centuries, getting a little farther into the medieval era or early medieval era, especially someone like John of Damascus, who lived in the 700s. So I guess the reason I wanted to give you those names and give you an idea of where they show up in church history is to show the great breadth that the Lutherans went to as they surveyed church history to see what have our fathers in the faith taught. We're getting guys who taught throughout the whole Roman Empire from Judea all the way to England. You got Alexandria and Carthage and Hippo down in northern Africa. You've got Rome and Milan in Italy. You've got Constantinople and Antioch in Asia Minor. You really, you get a sense of the Catholicity that the Lutherans were going for here. The Lutherans were going to the leaders and teachers of the whole church. They weren't interested in just cherry-picking things, but they wanted to show that their teaching matches up with the first eight centuries of Christian history. Excellently covered there. I think that is this really fantastic overview. And I want to get into then picking up on this. The confessors quote, I love how you said that there, the whole Catholicity of the church, really highlighting that this is the confession of the church. We're not using just one guy. I mean, I think, you know, it could have been really easy for Martin Luther, for instance, to just hang on everything Augustine. He was an Augustinian monk. And so that could have just been, this is our guy. And he was definitely a major church father. And so we could have just simply only cited him. But I like how you brought out there that this is the confession of of the church. It is the Catholicity, the universal teaching of the whole Christian church spanning everywhere where the, the Christian faith is taught throughout, especially the Roman Empire at that time and those early days. So great wealth of teachers, faithful teachers there. You highlighted that really well. 
And I do want to bring in this point that we see this in the catalog of testimonies here that the catalog has a very specific issue in view. They laid it out in the introduction as we covered in the first part of the show, specifically in connection with the formula of Concord and the Reformed, the teaching on Christ, especially connected to the Lord's Supper. However, as as you just laid out really well for us then, I think, this is again the universal Christian teaching that is in support of everything. And it all comes back to that chief article upon which the church stands and falls, right? And so would you want to comment then in some ways that the Lutherans call upon the fathers throughout the confessions, not just the formula and looking at the Reformed teachings that are kind of the main view here again, but how really the fathers are used throughout the confessions as a faithful and true confession of the Christian faith? Sure, I can give you a few examples of this. I bet you probably covered all these in earlier shows, but it wouldn't hurt to go back and zero in on where they actually quote some of these great teachers. And as you mentioned, the article of justification, the central chief article of the Christian faith, even that we have support and examples for its being taught in the early church. Just a couple examples from the Apology. One place they quote Ambrose, Bishop of Milan, and Ambrose says, Let no one boast about works, because no one is justified by his deeds. But he who is righteous has righteousness given to him, because he was justified from the washing of baptism. Faith, therefore, is that which frees through the blood of Christ. That's fantastic. I bet if I didn't tell you it was Ambrose, you would just assume it was Martin Luther or somebody. They also have a quote from Augustine, another giant of the early church, who says, All God's commandments are fulfilled when whatever is not done is forgiven. As Augustine has these great little uh, kind of bumper sticker quotes, I suppose. He's very quotable, very catchy. But what you know he's saying here is that when Christ's righteousness covers us and covers our sin, then all of God's commands are fulfilled, not by anything we've done, but by what Christ has done. There's other examples on the ministry and the office of the papacy. You have a guy like John Chrysostom actually commenting on Matthew 16, where Jesus says to Peter, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And the Roman Catholic theologians point to that and say, see, Peter is the rock upon which Christ has built his church, and therefore the papacy is that rock. And John Chrysostom, early church father, says, uh, Jesus says, upon this rock, not upon Peter, for Jesus built his church not upon man, but upon the faith of Peter. But what was his faith? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so there, that's quoted in the treatise on the power and primacy of the Pope, and our confessions show then that we Lutherans aren't just being crazy when we say, no, we don't need to submit to the authority of the Pope. We have this teaching from our church fathers as well. So there's just a couple examples If you don't mind, I want to throw in one other comment because what you were saying there earlier about how it would have been easy for Luther to just, you know, maybe stick with Augustine and not go to the other writers of the early church. And it made me think of a good response then to what we discussed earlier in the show when we were saying, you know, John Calvin and some of the Reformed theologians, they did read the early church fathers as well. But actually, I would, I, I'm not an expert in John Calvin, so there's probably going to be a pastor somewhere who gets uh, upset when I say this. But I would bet that's what Calvin did, that he did stick with Augustine so much 
to the exclusion of many of the other church fathers and was sort of left with a very narrow, small heritage. And that means he was as good as Augustine was. Augustine had his problems too. And so that means Calvin is stuck with Augustine's problems in many ways. Whereas the Lutherans were felt much freer, not only in looking to the fathers of the Western church like Ambrose and Augustine and Jerome, but they also looked to many of the fathers of the Eastern church, John Chrysostom, for example, or Cyril of Alexandria or Athanasius. And I think that, again, helped the Lutherans retain the full Catholicity of Christian teaching. Which I think highlights really well for us, too, something else that we would be covering in this as well, is that we're not saying that just because they're respected church fathers, faithful teachers and confessors of the faith, that they're infallible. That would be a Roman Catholic move, especially connected with the popes and things like that, right? What we're highlighting is is just because Augustine said it doesn't mean that he's infallible. And, And I like how you brought out there that maybe the reforms stick a little too exclusively with him. I probably agree with you on that. Again, feel free, uh, uh, listener, if you have a little more information on that, provide some feedback on that. I'd be glad to hear from that and would share that with Pastor Dodgers as well. But I tend to agree with you that I think that they're probably then stuck with some of the problems of Augustine. And we can do the same thing too as Lutherans, right? Sometimes we can maybe too exclusively just come back to Luther. I know that's kind of an old slam against us, but he's a very faithful teacher. Obviously, we owe a lot to him. He is a father to us in many ways in the faith, as we've already highlighted in this episode. But sometimes if we just get too hung up on it because Luther said it, we can also get stuck with some of the problems then. We're not saying that they're infallible. We're saying that they're faithful confessors. And I also like what you said there too, that see, we're not being crazy when we say this. And this is the confession of the church. And see, here are others, namely respected church fathers and teachers who are not infallible in everything they say, But as the breadth of Christian teaching checked against Scripture, these things have stood the test of time to be found faithful and true, not just by us, but by the Christian church as a whole. The breadth of Catholicity, as you said, that whole Christian teaching that is orthodox and true. And see, they have said these things too. And so just by citing them here, we're not saying they're infallible, especially not in everything that they said. We are saying that this has been a faithful and true teaching held up by the church throughout all the expanses of it. And we're not crazy. They've said it. We're agreeing with it. And we're citing it here because it is faithful and true. Alan, did you have any thoughts on that? Oh, I think you said it very well. That's perfect. Okay. All right. Well, then, so kind of in contrast to that question that you excellently covered there for us in covering the fathers throughout the whole confessions, I love the citations. Excellent job in that. But in specific then to this particular document, especially, again, as we've pointed out and as the introduction set up for us as well, there is the particular issue, namely of the person of Christ that is in view with this document. So what then would you say makes it so crucial that the reformers compile this special catalog of testimonies to address that particular issue? Well, kind of as we've already said, they're faced with this controversy with the Reformed who are saying, you guys are teaching new doctrines about the person of Christ and his two natures. And so they go back to these councils and early church fathers to show they're not teaching anything new. And I suppose the best way to confirm this or show this to our listeners is just to read some of these passages. 
they start by citing a couple of those ecumenical councils I mentioned earlier. And I want to read a couple passages from those before we move on to the individual theologians. So if anybody wants to know, this is on page 625 of your Concordia Reader's Edition. And from the Council of Ephesus, it's declared that if anyone dares to say that the man Christ is the bearer of God, and instead of saying that he is God, truly the Son of God by nature, the Word made flesh, who was made a partaker of flesh and blood precisely like us, let him be accursed. So it's emphasizing the unity of the two natures in Christ, that it is not enough to say that there's a man, Jesus, who sort of bears God within himself, but they are almost two different persons. That would be false. But also from Ephesus, and here I think it shows where the rubber really hits the road, Ephesus says, the council declares, if anyone does not confess that the word of God suffered in the flesh, was crucified in the flesh, and tasted death in the flesh, becoming the firstborn from the dead, although as God he is life and gives life, let him be accursed. I say the rubber hits the road here because this shows all the debates over the two natures in Christ are not just high-minded technicalities. This is not just some sort of philosophy that scholars like to ponder over in their ivory towers. This goes to our very salvation that if we cannot say that the eternal word of God, the Son of the Father, suffered in the flesh, died for us, that while hanging on the cross there, God died, even though in and of himself God is life, then we aren't saved. That this goes directly to our salvation, the forgiveness of sins, and eternal life that comes from that. All right, I should probably move on to some of the individuals that we want to look at. And I just picked four of the fathers that I thought would be useful to look at, some of the more famous ones. You have, first of all, Athanasius. We even have a creed named after him that we confess on Trinity Sunday, the Athanasian Creed. But he was most closely connected to the Council of Nicaea and also wrote a lot about the incarnation of Christ. And here's a, it's a little bit longer quote, but bear with me. It's really good stuff. Athanasius says, this is on page 630, he says, His body, Christ's body, receives those things that the Word always possessed according to his deity and perfection from the Father. As a man, he says that he received the power that as God he always has. He who glorifies others says, glorify me, in order to show that he had flesh that lacked such things. When the flesh of his humanity receives glorification, he speaks as if he himself had received it. Therefore, we must always keep in mind when reading the Holy Scriptures that none of those things that he, that's Jesus, that Jesus says he received in time, he received as though he did not already have them. For being God and the Word, naturally he always had those things. But he says that he received them according to his humanity, so that even as he received them in himself, in the flesh, he might in the future hand them over to us from the same flesh to be firmly possessed. So to shorten that up a little bit, it's saying that Christ is 
glorified in his humanity. We particularly see this and celebrate it at the ascension of our Lord, that his humanity is raised up and sits at the right hand of God. And even though as the eternal son of the Father, he always had that glory, he never lacked that glory, now as a man he has that glory, he receives that glory, all for the sake of our salvation and our glorification, so that he might glorify us, that his flesh would actually impart that glory to us. And so you can see how the Lutherans would read this and draw the conclusion then of what the Lord's Supper does, that in receiving the body and blood of Jesus Christ, we are participants in the glory of Christ, the Son of God, who is God and man. Another guy we should probably talk about is Leo. He is the Bishop of Rome and he's from the 400s. And I'm going to read one quote from him on page 646. This is what Leo says. The Catholic faith teaches and requires that we know that in our Redeemer, two natures have united, and that while their unique properties remain, a union of both substances has taken place since the time that the Word became flesh in the womb of the Blessed Virgin. Therefore, we are not to think of God without thinking that he is man, nor are we to think of the man without thinking that he is God. So when we think of Jesus, our Savior, our Redeemer, we must never think of him as only man or only God, but he is always both. And that also means that Jesus never acts as only God or only man. He is both God and man, yet perfectly one. And just to remind us that this is not just coming from the mind of Leo, and we happen to agree with it, but this is what Scripture says. Uh, a couple examples of this would be First John chapter 1, verse 7, where it says, The blood of Jesus, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. So how can blood cleanse from sin? Because it's Jesus' blood who is the Son of God. So both God and man there together. Also Ephesians chapter 4 verse 10, where it says, He who descended, that is the incarnate Son of God, Christ, is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he, the one Christ, might fill all things. So Christ, the Son of God, does not fill all things as only God, It's not just the God part of Jesus that fills all things. It is the entire person, including his human nature, that fills all things. And so therefore, as the Lutherans would point out, it is possible for Christ's body to be in many places, including on the altar in the celebration of the Lord's Supper. I keep talking, so I don't know if you want to say anything, Pastor Smith. Actually, I'm going to move us into the conclusion just because I'm looking at the time here. And I know you probably have other quotes, but is it all right if we move on? That's fine. All right. And I can pick up on something you said. I like what you said there, that this is what scripture says. And that's, again, what we're talking about when it comes to the church fathers is they're faithfully confessing what scripture itself says, that faithfully teaching it. And so we continue to hand that down from generation to generation as we've highlighted. And I think also then brings us to our conclusion, which I'll go ahead and read, and then we'll sum this all up here today with just a couple minutes left on the show. So this is the conclusion to the catalog of testimonies. And it says this. Christian reader, these testimonies of the ancient teachers of the church have been provided here not to suggest that our Christian faith is founded on the authority of men. The true saving faith is not founded on any church teacher, old or new, but only and alone on God's word as contained in the scriptures of the holy prophets and apostles, an unquestionable witness of divine truth. 
With his special and uncanny craft, Satan has caused fanatics to lead men from the Holy Scriptures, which, thank God, even a common layman can now read with benefit, to the writings of the ancient church, which are like a broad ocean. A person who has not read the fathers carefully cannot know precisely whether or not these new teachers are quoting their words correctly, and thus they leave a person in grievous doubt. This is why we have been compelled to declare with this catalog and to show everyone that this new false doctrine has as little foundation in the ancient pure teachers of the church as in the Holy Scriptures. It is, in fact, diametrically opposed to it. They quote the church fathers in such a way as to give them a false meaning contrary to the father's will. They do this just as they wantonly pervert the simple, plain, and clear words of Christ's testament and the pure testimonies of the Holy Scriptures. Because of this, the Book of Concord directs everyone to the Holy Scriptures and the simple catechism. I'm just going to say a hearty amen to that. That's that's the whole goal of this show, too. All right, back to the conclusion here, last sentence. The person who clings to this basic form with true, simple faith provides what is best for his soul and conscience, since it is built on a firm and immovable rock, citing Matthew 7, 17, Galatians 1, and Psalm 119. All right, Pastor Dodgers, again, just a minute or so here left in the show. As we sum this all up, the important question seems to be, how do we rightly think of and use the fathers in our Lutheran confession? Well, the conclusion said it perfectly, that we are not implying that Christian teaching is founded on the authority of men. As the formula of Concord states, the scriptures are the only true standard or norm by which all teachers and doctrines are to be judged. So they also said here in the conclusion that the writings of the ancient church are like a broad ocean. That's There's a lot there, and they're not always clear. They don't always agree with each other. They don't always teach correctly from the scriptures because they are men and they can err. So we have to read them carefully. We have to read them with discernment and we always have to test their writings against the clear and inerrant word of God. But when we do find teachers that are judged true, when their writings are judged to be true, then we should appreciate that. We should use it. We should not let others misquote the fathers and use them to support false teachings. Above all, I think we should remember that the Christian faith did not originate with us. As we said before, it is handed down from one generation of saints to the next as each generation holds on to Scripture. And so we can learn from the previous generations of the church because we are all part of that same Catholic church family. These men and teachers should not be strangers to us. I would say if we are going to be truly Lutheran, then these teachers are going to be our fathers. Well said. That's Pastor Anthony Dodgers. Thank you for joining us for Concord Matters today and talking us through the catalog of testimonies. While not a formal part of the Lutheran Confessions per se, is evidence from Scripture and the Church Fathers for the Lutheran Confession, specifically on the doctrine of Christ. Thank you, Pastor Dodgers, for teaching that so well for us today. And thank you, dear listener, for stopping by. And until next time, keep confessing, church.